want to explore the life of one of God's Old Testament prophets who lived around 800 BC. Little is known about the childhood of this faithful man, but the assumption is that he grew up in a somewhat wealthy, God-fearing family that farmed the land at the northern end of the Jordan Valley, just south of the Sea of Galilee. One day he was surprised when the elderly prophet, who had been God's spokesman to the northern kingdom of Israel for many years, anointed him as his successor. Let's uh, pick up the story starting in 1 Kings chapter 19. start picking up in verse 13, here we find that Elijah, who is not the main character of our message today, after calling down fire from heaven and having the people execute all the prophets of Baal, he fled for his life before Queen Jezebel. She'd sent him a message saying she would have him killed. The next day, he was depressed, he even asked God to take his life. But an angel appeared, strengthened him, gave him some food to eat. After resting and eating again, he traveled 40 days and nights to arrive at Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. In the mountain of God, because of course that's where God appeared to Moses and had spoken the Ten Commandments to the ancient Israelites as well. And while there at Horeb, God appeared to Elijah and told him, and he still had work for him to do. We're going to pick this up in verse 13. This is right after the dramatic uh, events, we might say, where God gets uh, Elijah's attention. The wind comes, the earthquake comes, the fire comes, and God is not in any of those things. Then the still small voice comes. And here's what he had to say. Picking up in 1 Kings 19, verse 13. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, his cloak, you might say, and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God, of course, knows the answer to this question. But he's uh, prompting Elijah to think about it. Elijah answers, verse 14, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, gave him a to-do list, you might say. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And I have reserved 7,000 of Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we see in this account some work. God still had for Elijah to do, one of which was to anoint Elisha as his successor, but also some encouragement. Elijah was feeling all alone 
There were many who were not going along with the uh, worship of Baal, thankfully. It's interesting as well here is that uh, it appears Elijah had never met Elisha, right? Uh, this wasn't someone known to him. Uh, it doesn't appear so from the, the context of the scriptures here. God had chosen a future successor. Today I want to spend some time examining the life of Elisha and then also draw some lessons from this story and information. I got a chuckle out of the title of our first split sermon because my title is Lessons from the Life of Elisha. <laughs> so you get two, two split sermons today with lessons from two different, very different men from the Old Testament. And thankfully this one was not a tragedy, but there were some excellent lessons from our first message today. As we start to this message, let's continue here where we are in 1 Kings 19 and just pick up a little bit where we see Elijah go and, and first meet with Elisha. This is my call, Elisha's calling. 1 Kings 19, we're continuing down in verse 19. So we see Elijah departs from Mount Horeb and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. He was with the twelve. Now, we might read right over that and think, that just sounds like uh, normal, normal plowing. Twelve yoke of oxen is a huge team. Uh, you would have to be a very skilled person to be able to drive and control twenty-four oxen and pull in a, a plow. So, uh, I think you can certainly infer that Elisha was no slouch, uh, not so wealthy that he was uh, with his feet up and pointing at the servants to go do all the work. He was in the field working it and likely highly skilled uh, in this regard. And we see here that Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, or his cloak, which was a symbolic invitation to become a prophet. Verse 20, and he left the oxen, Elisha, and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Wants to see how uh, committed he is. Verse 21, so Elisha turned back from them, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. We see here that you know, God selected Elisha, but Elisha also had to respond to that call, right? You could have perhaps imagine a scenario where Elijah goes by and asks, hey, do you have any interest in being a prophet? He goes, eh, I'm kind of busy here, uh, doing pretty well, got 12 yoke of oxen, uh, we're in the middle of plowing. And maybe later will be a better time, right? But he obviously, and God knew his heart and selected him and telling Elijah to go to him. But he embraced and was willing to take on this role. So Elisha became Elijah's student, or personal assistant, you might say. And a 
apparently Elisha had several years of training with Elijah. We don't know exactly how much time, but prior to taking on Elijah's role as a prophet to the nation of Israel. The ISBE suggests that Elisha became well known amongst the various schools of the prophets that Elijah oversaw, and that the two of them probably lived among these schools. But during this time, Elisha saw Elijah's faithfulness to God, and likely grew in his own relationship with God as well. As for these schools, attended by groups of men called the Sons of the Prophets, they're mentioned a number of times uh, here in the latter part of 1 Kings and also in 2 Kings. Albert Barnes has a note regarding them. He says there were, these were the schools or colleges of prophets, which existed in several of the Israelite and probably the Jewish towns where young men were regularly educated for prophetical office. And these schools make their appearance first under the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 19. We'll turn there. Let's continue on the story if you want to turn over to 2 Kings now. We have a very interesting story recorded for us about Elijah's parting gift for Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. This is where we see this kind of transfer of responsibility. Elijah and Elisha. It appears that it was known, uh, or certainly became known, uh, to Elisha. He was realizing that his master, Elijah, would soon depart, and Elisha was determined to stay with him until the very end. It certainly suggests a very warm and tender relationship between the two. We see here at the start of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 gives us the context. It says, It came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind or up into the sky, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to battle. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to battle. Verse 3, now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. And then this episode repeats. Then it's off to Jericho. The same little formula repeats. And then a little bit later, off uh, onto the Jordan. And it repeats once again. It's interesting here, as we see they get to the Jordan, dropping down to verse 7, Elisha proclaiming he will not leave him. We see about 50 men, the sons of the prophets, went and stood facing them in the distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. In verse 8, Elijah took his mantle, his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water of the Jordan, and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on to dry ground, similar to Joshua, the children of Israel, came to Jericho many years before. Verse seven, or verse nine, pardon me. We drop down here. They've crossed the river. So it was when they crossed over. We see this 
great question from Elijah to Elisha. He says, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away? Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Elijah answers, so he, before I, I get into that, this double portion, it's not so common in our society today, but at that time, the double portion was part of the inheritance of the firstborn son. So you had multiple sons, you pass away, you're uh, providing for each of them, it was normal for the firstborn son to have a double portion. Obviously, Elisha and Elijah were not directly related, but you see, it also demonstrates in some ways the relationship between the two. Elisha looked at him in some ways as a father and asks for this, this firstborn son's blessing, the double portion of the spirit. Of course, referring, as we know, to God's spirit. Verse 10, Elijah answered him. He said, you've asked a hard thing. And of course, it's not Elijah's to give, but ultimately God's. He said, nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So he left it in God's hands. Of course, Elijah was not the one to control whether Elisha could see that or not see that, or in this giving of this double portion of God's spirit. Continuing on, verse 11, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly the chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And then he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So we see Elisha take up the mantle or cloak of Elijah and that really representing this transfer of responsibility. Of course, it did, was granted that vision of Elijah being taken uh, by God and therefore also that double portion of God's spirit that he requested. So he comes back now the exact same miracle that Elijah had just performed, God's power, in splitting Jordan, we see once again, he comes back with the mantle, strikes the water, and in verse 14, and crosses back over. And the 50 men and the sons of the prophets who are still there realize that Elisha has now taken on this new role and responsibility. Now, Elisha's servant, service as a prophet extended over approximately 50 years in the reigns of four kings of Israel, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, and Jehoash. One other thing that I think is interesting when we look at the life of Elisha and of his ministry is there are a number of miracles recorded for this prophet, uh, I find very interesting. The ministry of Elisha was very different from that of Elijah. Elijah was commissioned to deliver fearless messages of condemnation and judgment to the king and to the people, warning them to turn from sin. Whereas Elisha's ministry was to build upon the work that Elijah had begun. 
by teaching the people God's ways. Elisha's prophetic ministry included works of healing and restoration. And the biblical record also shows Elijah bringing joy to the people through miracles from God. I'd say he was more of a pastoral prophet. And while he could certainly be harsh towards sin, he was in general of, I'd say, a gentle nature and encouraging people to follow God. I'm not going to read um, from the scripture of the various miracles. I just want to list for you quickly the miracles that are recorded that God performed through Elisha over what's recorded in just the next few chapters here of 2 Kings. The first one for us is he heals the waters of Jericho. And I find that interesting. It's a bit of a bookend in that Elijah's ministry began by shutting up the heavens for three and a half years with no rain, whereas Elisha's ministry began by healing the spring of water near Jericho, which is recorded a few verses farther down here in 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 3 is an account of Elisha going to communicate God's words to the kings of Israel and Judah. I'll skip over that part for now of Elisha's ministry and continue with some more of the miracles which go on in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. Another miracle recorded for us was the multiplying of oil for a poor family. Later, Jewish tradition, both Josephus and the Targums, identified that man as Obadiah, the debt resulting from borrowing money to feed the hidden prophets. There were two more miracles involving allowing a child couple, childless couple to conceive and then healing their son when he died. At Gilgal, during a time of famine, Elisha renders a poisonous pot of food harmless. And at probably the same time of famine, Elisha correctly predicts a few loaves of bread would satisfy a large group of people. We also have Elisha involved in healing Naaman of his leprosy. And Elisha pronounces leprosy on Gehazi, servant for coveting some of Naaman's law. And then we also have recorded Elisha making an exit here. And even several chapters later, this is after Elisha's death, but I find it interesting considering this, that his bones, someone touched his bones and brought the man back to life. That's in 2 Kings chapter 13. So you see, Elisha involved in quite a number of encouraging miracles to the people here over to what's recorded for us in just the space of a few chapters. In the scriptures. Now, I did reference in passing that he was involved in delivering messages from God to the kings as well. There's one particular example that I do want to cover with you uh, that I, I find very interesting. This is in 2 Kings, also uh, here in chapter 6, if you turn over there with me. 2 Kings chapter 6. <coughs> We have a situation where the Syrians were raiding and looking to go to war against Israel. <coughs> and they'd uh, hauled up their army in 
Elisha had informed the Israelite king of where the Syrians were planning to go and told him, don't go down there. It's very hard to have a battle if the other side doesn't show up, right? So uh, uh, a little bit of maybe early guerrilla warfare. Uh, Syrians bring all the guys out, come on down, and Israel's nowhere to be found. Uh, they don't show up. Uh, so keep avoiding a potential significant battle, the one in which they were physically outmatched. And it got to the point, the Syrian king was asking himself, I must have a spy in our ranks. Somebody is telling the Israelites where we're going to be. Because every time we show up, they're nowhere to be found. And the word comes to him that uh, one of the servants that is Elisha, prophet in Israel, who is telling the king of Israel where they're planning to go. And we'll come back to another part of this, this story a bit later. But part of the resolution of this is uh, Elisha strikes them with blindness and then goes out and leads them up into the center of Israel in Samaria. And we see he opens their eyes and there they find and surrounded the middle of Samaria after being struck with blindness, this invading army from Syria. Let's notice verse 21. Here, Second Kings chapter 6. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, his first thought upon seeing this uh, group of Syrians who were blind and now has opened their eyes, completely surrounded by Israel, he said to Elisha, my father, as a sign of respect in his prophetic role, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? exciting idea to this king of Israel, all these unarmed Syrians who just uh, who had attempted to bring war against Israel, bring them in. Notice Elisha's answer to him here in verse 22. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Notice verse 23. Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. I think this is a really incredible example recorded for us. Let's uh, flip over if you would quickly to Proverbs chapter 25. We have uh, verses 21 and 22. We had these verses quoted to us earlier from Romans by our first uh, speaker today. The Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22 said, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. I think this example from Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6 is one of the most accurate depictions of this problem and wisdom and action that we have recorded for us in all the scriptures. We see this exact scenario. Here's your enemy. They're brought in. They've been blind and walking, traipsing all over Israel. 
all day. And what do they do? The king suggests, hey, can we go? No, beat him. And we see here this reference, of course, to this coals of fire on their head. That's obviously not literal. They're not beating and then waiting to watch their heads burst into flames. But it's meant that not to harm the individual, but to prod their brain, their thinking, that they should not mistreat someone who's been kind to them. And we see here at the end of this, and the Lord will reward you. And what was the outcome of the story in 2 Kings chapter 6? The Syrians came no more. They didn't raid anymore. Here, they were trying to pick a fight. They were trying to battle, to follow God's way and his wisdom. And we see the perfect formula and outcome of applying these principles. I think it's a great example and story for us all. So let's pivot a little bit after that brief overview from the life of Elisha. And think about a few lessons for us from the example of this man. The first one I think we can take is, of course, we must be dedicated to our home. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 9. chapter 9, the very last verse of this chapter. A few words of Jesus recorded for us here, Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Find this an interesting metaphor in light of how Elisha was called to be a prophet. In each of our lives, we will face tests as to whether we will remain faithful to our call. For many, we have faced those questions over the years when there's been turmoil in various previous church organizations that we've been a part of. Sometimes, apparently difficult decisions become easier to make when we go back to our spiritual roots, back to our covenant with God, to seek first the kingdom. Of course, the most difficult challenges are often different for each of us. Work, health, family relationships, church, the finances are many common areas. For you, it may be finding a job where you can faithfully observe God's Sabbath and holy days. Or you may be tempted to drift away from God, become part of the world. Your struggle may be over whether you'll even commit your life to God via baptism or not. You may face many of these questions in different chapters of your life. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Note verse 10. 
chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. We all have to be diligent in making our call and election sure. We all face different challenges, trials, temptations. Satan would love nothing better than to lead us away from our faith and our relationship with God. But certainly, Elisha's dedication to his calling remains as an example for all of us how to do it right. Second lesson in the life of Elisha is that education is important. Education is important seen referenced many times over these chapters, these sons of the prophets and the schools of the prophets. Let's turn back to the Proverbs. Many Proverbs that speak to the value of education. We can start with Proverbs 15, verse 14. Proverbs 15, verse 14. says, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. But the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. We want to grow in understanding. We have to seek knowledge. Which means it takes a bit of effort. We can't uh, sit back and wait for knowledge to drop on us. If we do, we'll certainly come in a hard way. Proverbs 18, verse 15, has a similar, another proverb in a similar vein. Proverbs 18, verse 15, says, The heart of the fruit acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 10, 14 tells us, Wise people store up knowledge. This reminds us that learning is a lifetime process. Education is not something that only happens when you attend school as a young person. Part of being a Christian is committing to a life of lifelong learning. Attending services, listening to these messages, part of learning. And our education as Christians, our own Bible study, certainly part. Attending Christian leadership workshops or attending various seminars the church puts on throughout the year. These are all ways that we continue to grow in our spiritual education. And that's something that should never stop. I know talking with my grandmother, Jeanette Trayway, she's uh, Rarely able to get services these days. She's often on her Roku watching uh, the various sermons on the Sabbath. And she tells me she's still learning new things in her 90s. And been in the church since the early 1950s. There is more to know and learn of God's scripture and his way than any of us could accumulate in our whole lifetime. There's new depths to be found. But of course, our education isn't confined only. God's way of scripture, 
foundation for a successful life, but a well-rounded education would certainly also include information on how to earn a living, how to get along with others, how to take care of our property, possessions, how to better serve God and His people. It's certainly important for our young people to get an education, whatever manner that leads them, learning trade, skill, university, so they can support themselves and their family, and be able to support God's work as well through their tithes and offerings, and help others who are in need. But every year, we should keep learning more and more about all walks of life. God gave each of us a marvelous mind and we glorify Him as we use it to its fullest potential. We're made in the image of God, and God is delighted to see us use it to apply our knowledge and wisdom and apply it in a godly way. The third lesson I think we can take from the life of Elisha is that kindness to others is an important attribute. Let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 4. Once again. 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to reference one of the stories that I glossed over briefly in listing out some of the miracles of Elisha. This story is, we'll pick up in verse 12 here, 2 Kings chapter 4. Verse 12 of 2 Kings 4, and then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. When he called her, she stood before him. And this was a woman who had gone out of her way. Uh, Elisha traveled around uh, the region. He wasn't set up in one place and had everyone else come to him to consult the prophet. He seemed to make his way around the country and visit with various people in different areas. And this woman uh, got out of her way to provide food for Elisha uh, many times in the past. So he would often stop over in this area. And then later, she discussed with her husband, and they set up a small guest room for him to have a place to stay and rest on his travels as he went through. And here, he calls this woman, verse 13, and he said to his servant, say to her now, look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? I should have certainly well connected in the country. Uh, why are you being so kind to me? What can I do for you? She answered, I dwell among my own people. She she wasn't looking for advancement or doing this for Elisha in order to, uh, you know, politically maneuver herself or her husband into high positions or uh, get something out of it. We notice verse 14, Elisha asks this question, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, actually she has no son and her husband is old. So we see here one of the miracles I referenced earlier in the story is that Elisha actually, with God's help, blessed her to conceive a son, even though her husband was old and they had been barren up to this point. And even a bit 
find that her son had passed away, and Elisha came and was able to revive or resurrect him uh, back to life. An incredible blessing for this woman, but all started with a bit of kindness. I think it's also interesting how Elisha travels around the country in a, one small way, parallels how Jesus taught and traveled amongst the people. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, in verse 2. This is one of the verses we see is. Christians, New Testament Christians, then we should be doing in a way that we can follow this example with each other and with others. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Helping others when they're going through difficult times and challenges is part of being a Christian, part of why we're called together to be part of a congregation, to be part of the body of Christ, is that we don't have to face everything alone. Of course, we do have the Father and Jesus Christ to support us no matter where we are, but if we're blessed to be in a congregation with other believers, we have the blessing of the support of our fellow brethren when we go through challenges and difficult times both in prayer and in physical health as well, just as this Shinran woman provided physically for Elisha and his needs as well. We see here that it fulfills the law of Christ. Find that interesting choice of phrasing here, but in essence, this makes it a Christian law. It means it's a mandatory way of thinking and acting if we are to consider all ourselves Christian, or live up to our call as Christians. Reminds me of Paul, the court of Jesus Christ, in Acts 20, verse 35, when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. The last lesson I want to take from the example of Elisha is that God assists us just as he did Elisha. How can we better see God's involvement in our lives? One of the most famous examples of God's power is uh, at times perhaps invisible hand working in our lives is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. A bit earlier in what we referenced regarding the invasion of the Syrian armies. We already covered the end of that story. But we have this incredible example in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the Syrian army stops trying to go meet the Israelite army on the battlefield and starts hunting for Elisha instead. And shows up one day at his house, in his town. Second Kings chapter 6 We'd already covered how he would go and uh, try to meet Israel on the field of battle. Israel wouldn't show up because Elisha had warned them ahead of time. We see here verse 12 is where 
one of King Syria's servants makes it known to him that it's Elisha the prophet who's actually telling what's going on. And so he says, well, let's go find Elisha. Verse 13, they tell him he's in Dothan. And so verse 14, he sends a huge army, horses, chariots, great army. They come by night, surprise attack, and surround the city. And here we are, let's pick it up in verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God, this is Gehazi, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Notice verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What an incredible experience that must have been. I think I mistakenly said earlier this was Gehazi. Of course, uh, things happened to him earlier in the, the story of Naaman and his covenant uh, name as well. It just says the, the servant here. But a really powerful example of God's power and support for Elisha. I find it fascinating that Elisha prays for his servant to see, but it doesn't tell us whether Elisha can see or not. Perhaps we assume he did, but we don't necessarily have records other than that God grants special vision that people have the ability to see in the Spirit of God. Perhaps Elisha didn't need to see. He knew it was there. And he chose to strengthen the heart of his servant by asking God to grant him the ability to see. I wonder if we were granted the ability to see it in a similar way at some point. Did we see an angel of God standing at the door, protecting us when we gather for services? Perhaps at a decent tabernacles or other church events on the holy days? We certainly rely on his protection. can't see it doesn't mean it's there. This is a great example according to the scripture for us. That there are many forces that God has in his disposal far beyond what we see with our human eyes. We can learn to rely on God and know faithfully know that he supports and assists us in the same ways. When we review the life of Elisha, we're reminded that God is certainly willing and able to help us with what we need when we need it. We are also reminded that those who trust in God are to live by faith and not by sight. Let's be inspired by the lessons we learn in this life of Elisha the prophet and determined to be faithful to our call. Make our home and election sure.